0: Hi, this is Steve. Anyone who's listened to the show knows that one of the things I love the most is watching great craftsmanship at work. And there are few films that exemplify filmmaking craftsmanship better than Rob Reiner's brilliant 1990 film, Misery. Based on the Stephen King novel and starring James Caan and Kathy Bates, Misery is as simple a movie as you can imagine. There are no cinematic vistas, huge action set pieces, or mind-blowing special effects. In fact, most of the film is just two people in a room. And yet, despite those limitations, or more accurately, because of them, Misery manages to be one of the most intense, stressful, scary, and engrossing films ever made. It is truly one of my favorite movies, and if you haven't seen it, I would carefully sneak down the hallway of the internet to cinephiles.net, where you can buy or stream Misery along with every other film we've ever reviewed. And if you happen to support the show on Patreon.com thecinephiles The Cinephiles, right now you could be hearing John and I discuss movies that got the game right. In other words, those films where the boxing, card playing, race car driving, or baseball hitting really showed their understanding of the game. So, that's Getting the Game Right on Patreon and Misery, starring Kathy Bates and James Caan, this Friday on The Cinephiles. Oh, and Happy Halloween.
1: There is nothing to worry about. You're going to be just
0: fine. I'll take good care of you. I'm your number one fan. Hello and welcome once again to The Cinephiles, where once a year, in the fall, John and I face our fears and wade into a scary movie. My name is Steve Morris, and I am slightly afraid, but also a directing instructor and a filmmaker in Los Angeles, California.
2: Hello, everyone. Uh, My name is John Roca. My knees are knocking, but I'm ready to walk into our Halloween, our annual Halloween episode, uh, tackling one of the great horror films um, or chilling films, depending on what our feelings are, uh, that year um, here on the Cinephiles. And, uh, you know, right after our this is after our 300th episode, right, Steve? So it's a great way to kick off uh, the next 300 episodes of uh, this show with something
0: uh, funny and us confronting our or something scary and us confronting our fears in a funny way. Well, and whether or not you define this as a horror film or a suspense film or a thriller, mm-hmm. I will certainly define it as a great film. I mm-hmm. absolutely love this movie and it's and it's funny the way this came about because not funny the way it came about, but we had a different plan for Halloween this year, mm-hmm. and we and it was a classic film and a great film. And one we will definitely do next year. But then we lost the great James Con, and while we did a week of tributes because we've done a lot of movies that he's in, yeah. Both of us went. If we're really going to celebrate James Con, we can't do it without doing 1990s Rob Reiner film Misery, yeah. Yeah. It's funny you texted me just a few hours ago telling me how much you love this movie, and I feel the same way. I think this is such a perfectly well well made film.
2: Yeah, I mean, in preparation for this, I watched it on HBO Max, and I texted Steve this as well. Like uh, they have a great because they have a relationship with TCM, so they'll borrow some stuff uh, from TCM. And what they have on the HBO Max version of Misery is this opening seven minutes from Rob Reiner talking, and and you know just typical great. Full on Rob Reiner, which I love, um, talking about how this whole film came about and all the people that were involved. I'm sure Steve's going to touch on it as we get into some pre-production, but it was fascinating and it made me very excited to see the movie. And then when the movie started, I was like, damn, you know, because sometimes you watch 90s films, you're like, oh, right. Like we just did that watch along of Air Force One and certainly it can feel dated at times. But this film, although some of the techniques feel very 90s, the overall effect of the film is still Very relevant. I would argue even more relevant than it's ever been in 2022, considering some of the actions uh, by uh, Annie in the film and what we see now from some of the more unstable uh, members of the fandom, whether it's uh, Star Wars or Marvel or DC or on YouTube or on Twitter or politics. We're seeing many more Annie Wilkes than we thought since that movie came out. And so it carries now watching it, it carries a certain extra level of chilling in a real world way
0: than um, than it did in the past. I think that's totally true. Um, it's actually scary The the I mean, I think, you know, this movie is on some level about celebrity stalking and is mm-hmm. at some level about how we create a relationship with someone that we don't know. Yeah. And man, there is so often where we see really negative and really, really scary reactions to famous people from anybody who just yeah. feels that they can, it's scary. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And certainly, um, you know, if we remember that
2: documentary, uh, imagine the John Lennon one, seeing him talk to that guy uh, outside his house with Yoko there. And oh, the guy yeah. thinks that he was creating music and speaking to him personally through his music. And of course, yeah. John wants to speak. Of course, every musician wants to speak as many people as possible but not to someone specific and to take it in that way certainly speaks a little bit about mental health and certainly steve now after having all these conversations that we've had in the last what 30 years since this film came out talking about mental health looking at annie through a completely different prism uh this time around was certainly a
0: fascinating experience for me watching the movie it, it's a really, really interesting movie. Do you remember when you first came to it? Yeah, uh, I was, I'll tell you exactly. I remember this so vividly. I was at um, um, my AIT
2: training in Augusta, Georgia, at Fort Gordon, the Signal Corps. Uh, as I think I've told this story on the show that I snuck off the base uh, under false pretenses. I was essentially AWOL, took a bus to back to Virginia, so I could get my car and then drove it all the way back to Augusta, Georgia, so I could have a set of wheels while I was down there in Georgia. One of the more the more entropi- enter what would he call it Ent- enterprising moves that I made when I was in the military. Yeah. Um, and of course joining it when I'm old, when I was where at the time I was kind of coming into my own. So anyway, so one of these weekends I saw the trailer for Misery at another movie because I would go see movies all the time on the weekends by myself or with some of the guys from the from the platoon or the squad. And this one was something that none of the guys wanted to see. So I went on my own to go see it on a Saturday afternoon at whatever the mall was there in Augusta, Georgia. And I remember the entire movie. Just remember going in, remember being absolutely blown away. As a massive reader of Stephen King, and then that hobbling scene. Dude, just like Kennedy assassination. Like you, never, you always remember where you were the first time you saw that hobbling scene. And I remember screaming yeah. in the back of the theater and grabbing my armrests and feeling like I had made a spectacle of myself in that moment, so I just remember that vividly, and that'll always—that's always, always going to be how I remember the movie and where I was when I saw the
0: movie. So I saw. So first of all, I was huge Rob Reiner fan mm. already. Mm-hmm. I mean, besides the fact that I grew up watching All in the Family, <laughs> and I and I've, I know I've said this now many, many times on the Cinephiles, I will put Rob Reiner's first bunch of movies against basically anybody. Yeah. Um, including the great directors of all time, which are this is Spinal Tap, the sure thing, which I watched over and over yeah, again. That um, film, right. Um, Stand by me, the princess bride, when Harry met Sally, then misery. Mm-hmm. And then a few good men North. We can forget about that one. The American and the American president. Yeah. I mean, that's an um, unbelievable list of films. So I was already a huge fan. I went to see it in the theater, <laughs> despite the fact that I don't particularly like horror films. I was not a Stephen King guy at this point. Really? No, I probably had read because the first Stephen King book I ever read was The Gunslinger. Oh, okay. Uh, because I found it as an audiobook. because, again, I'm not a horror guy. And then by this point, I had probably read a, The Gunslinger and maybe Drawing of the Three and maybe Eyes of the Dragon and The Stand, maybe. But I definitely was not deep into Stephen King. Now I've read tons of Stephen King. But I thought this movie was just astounding and I. Uh, it's funny because it came up just in our 300th episode conversation. It's come up a few times lately. Is what I admire the most is craftsmanship, mm. is the attention to detail, how you do every little thing, in particular storytelling. How do you tell a story through film? This movie's like a masterclass. Yeah. The storytelling is so precise and he does so much with so little. Uh, it's a really good movie. I agree. A thousand percent. And uh, I'll give you some pre production. And John, please jump in because, I, you know, if you've got some other stuff. But strangely enough, so Stephen King, basically all his books get optioned. Yeah. And this book didn't get optioned. And partially because Stephen King is holding it back because it was really personal to him. And Andrew Scheinman, who is a producer at Castle Rock, who worked with Rob Reiner, read it on a plane, gave it to Rob. And basically, Rob goes to Stephen King because he had already done Stand By Me, which is based on the body. So they already had a relationship. And Stephen King said, I will only, only let you option it if you are either the director or the producer. And they make that deal, and Rob is going to produce it. He's not going to direct it. And the person that they bring in, they bring in William Goldman, who would obviously Rob Reiner work with on The Princess Bride, and they bring in George Roy Hill to direct. Yeah, And they're building the script together. It seems like it went a long way. And there is the hobbling scene, which... Spoiler alert, I'm just gonna say in the book, he doesn't break, she doesn't break his ankles. No, no. She cuts off his foot with an axe. Yeah, with an axe. And George Roy Hill (laughs) went, I can't I can't do it. (laughs) I can't I can't do that scene. And so he drops out. Yeah, man. It's a visceral scene. You can understand why someone might not want to film that, you know. (laughs) So so then they're also looking at actors, and it sounds like they went after all of them Mm -hmm. (laughs) to play this lead role. They went after William Hurt, not once, but twice. I could see that. Kevin Klein, Mike, Michael Douglas. Totally. Totally. See Michael. How about Harrison Ford? Oh, that would be, yeah, that would have totally worked, but then let's go to another direction. Let's have Dustin Hoffman. (laughs) It would have been a different movie. Then uh, Robert De Niro, Al Pacino, Richard Dreyfuss, Gene Hackman, Robert Redford, all turn it down. Yeah. Then the guy who doesn't turn it down says, not only will I act in this movie, but I will direct it as well. And that is Warren Beatty. The hubris of Warren Beatty rearing its its head again. Yes. And, it sounds, and this is what's weird about movies is that George Roy Hill's working on it. And William Goldman, by the way, he describes George Roy Hill as the best director he has ever worked with. Wow. Which he worked with, obviously, on Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, and I think the great Waldo Pepper. Which is a really interesting movie, by the way. Mm. Have you seen that one? Yeah, the Robert Redford. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I saw that growing up. Yeah, yeah, that's a really interesting movie. And it's interesting, by the way, to hear William Goldman describe George Roy Hill as this the best director he's ever worked with on a commentary track for a movie of his directed by somebody else. <laughs> uh, and so, and it's and it sounds like George Roy Hill added some great ideas, mm-hmm. and then Warren Beatty added some great ideas. In particular, one of the things that he added was why is Paul Sheldon still believing her a little bit about roads and phone line and all that little stuff. Some of that comes from Warren Beatty. Unfortunately, Dick Tracy is in post-production and it's having problems and Warren Beatty backs out. Here's what William Goldman says about why all these guys turned it down. He says they turned it down because movie stars don't like playing subordinate to women. He's not wrong.
2: And yeah. that's the sad truth of it. For all their talk of empowerment and talk of equality and all this kind of shit, a lot of progressive guys in Hollywood who are movie stars, quote unquote progressive, did not want to be seen, um, you know, being manhandled by a woman or being in depth being submissive to a woman. They felt it would affect their brand, and I'm sure their agents yep. and managers got in their ears and 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 convinced them of that nonsense as well. And that's why you, it takes a man's man who isn't
0: intimidated by that kind of shit to play a role like this. It's so funny. I think almost every actor that I listed, yeah, that would have been a really good movie. Yeah. I cannot picture anybody other than James Kahn. It, it, it's, it's a fascinating, it's so
2: great. In and movie. the irony is Kahn would have never been my first choice, but it works so well, especially because of the way Kahn plays Paul Sheldon and where Paul Sheldon is in his life. When we encounter him at the beginning of the movie, in this transition place, in this frustrated place, in this possible ascension to uh, a new level that will be creatively satisfying for him. That's not something I normally see from James Caan, you know,
0: who plays more of the put upon characters in in, uh, Hollywood. Well, Andy's always active. I mean, he is a energetic, yeah. active actor, and so going and this is where they finally, where Rob Reiner finally went. Well, maybe this can work. Is let's get the most hyper guy, the biggest maniac in Hollywood, and put him in bed for fifteen weeks. <laughs> yeah. um, and it, it adds so much to the film. One thing, by the way, I just this is my quick bit of bitching. Is so there are two commentary tracks on the on the Blu-ray. One is uh, Rob Reiner, who's great, and the other is William Goldman. Mm. So he has his own commentary track. This is the first thing he says as he starts the commentary track. He said, I've only seen this movie twice. This is the second time. <laughs> <laughs> so my first reaction to that, of course, is like, Well, fuck you. Like yeah. someone paid you to you should have watched, you should have more. And then there are just literally 20-minute stretches where he says nothing. Yeah. And then there are long stretches where he just kind of rambles about his career and about hollywood all of which is he's a funny guy and he's charming and then interspersed with that are seven things he said that were absolutely great and made me happy that i listened to the entire hour and 45 minute commentary track but it pissed me off (laughs) oh yeah no i've had my dealings with him he's a bit i know you have yeah (laughs) so it was actually william goldman that suggested kathy bates for the part yes and she was not a star she'd never done maybe she'd done a movie she certainly never started a movie she was a well-known stage actor and she had read the book a friend gave her the book and said look if they ever do this movie you should play the part mm-hmm. and rob reiner had seen her on broadway and as soon as goldman mentioned her name he went perfect let's yeah. let's get her there was really not a lot of discussion after she came up and what's interesting about it is she's an unknown and James Conn is obviously a known actor. Right. And what and what Rob Reiner said about it was it makes perfect sense. Paul Sheldon is a famous writer, Annie Wilkes is a nobody. And so having a known face play Paul Sheldon and an unknown face played Annie Wilkes makes yeah. perfect sense. Yeah. Um one of the interesting things they did right before they started shooting the cinematographer is Barry Sonnenfeld mm. and this is his last movie as a cinematographer. He actually obviously started with the Cone brothers and then moved on to do um when Harry met Sally and uh, maybe did the princess bride too. And then after this, obviously he's a director. When he brought, heard Kathy Bates was doing it. He said, you know what? We could do some really interesting things with her look. And so they did a um, camera test, not testing her to whether she got the part. She already had the part Mm -hmm. where he could just show how different lenses looked on Kathy Bates in the space. And I think you totally see the benefits of this. Yeah absolutely
2: um one of the things that he says in the TCM intro which is the the most recent intro he did for the movie is that um, she came in to audition for the role and she was two sentences in and he's like okay you got it. okay you're done Wow and she thought oh my god I can do it again I can do it differently as an actor always does when you cut you're cut off or you cut yeah. short after you just started. And he goes, No, no. As typical Rob Reiner, and no, no, I know you can do it. You got the part. You you do it. And she was just shocked that she had booked it in the room, because as you said, she had no experience or not a lot of experience booking leads in in, in feature films. Um, and she's the first question she said is, Can I call my mother? That was the first thing she said, can I call my mother? And then he says, and of course, um, you know, she won the Oscar. So I'm, I'm assuming she called her mother then too.
0: I would assume so. Story. Um, it's funny. You just reminded me. I know it's from the Princess Bride, and mm. I think it was something he told Wallace Shawn, which mm. is Wallace Shawn, because originally that part I'm pretty sure it was supposed to be Danny DeVito, oh my and it's God, supposed to be a, it's supposed to be a Sicilian, and Wallace Shawn is like, I'm not a Sicilian. I'm not Danny DeVito. This doesn't make any sense, and he's super insecure about playing it and and he goes up to rob and says look i just don't and you could picture wallace sean being totally neurotic like i don't know who this guy is i don't know who he is what do i do i don't know who he is and rob reiner goes it's easy he's you and wallace sean goes oh (laughs) and then has no problem playing the part of course like that's the kind of director it's a different kind of director from some of these you know tyrants we've talked about yeah yeah. Uh, one other thing i want to say or two other things i want to say one is you know, frequently I read the book before doing this. Mm. I decided not to read the book. Okay. Because this is probably one of my least favorite Stephen King books. Yeah. I don't like it that mm-hmm. much. And I, lo- I really love Stephen King. Right. And then I decided, fuck, I should probably read the book. So then I did read the book. Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm a crazy person. <laughs> like, I have real problems. <laughs> and when I mean, well, you read it, you're right. <laughs> well, and the, here's the th- so here's the thing. I still don't love the book. Right. I'm really glad I read it because it's really good contrast because they're so different.
2: Yeah. Just like the body is so different. Say what I me. Or Shawshank is so different from the short story that he wrote as well. Yeah.
0: Well, and the biggest thing, and this is why why I'm glad I read it and why I wanted to point it out, is that the whole book is Paul's internal monologue. Mm -hmm. Because in a book, the challenge is... I'm in this space where very little is happening. How am I going to fill it up with stuff? Well, I'm filling it up with Paul's thoughts. Right. And you hear his thoughts from the beginning to the end. You go deep into him thinking about writing Misery. You go deep in all this stuff you hear. And this movie is the opposite. Yeah. Is that it's all just observing and wondering what Paul is thinking or figuring out what Paul is thinking. Yeah. And that is just the polar opposite in terms of uh, writing. And, and that's why I also think, I think this book is a great example of talking about screenplay writing mm-hmm. and about film craftsmanship. And the thing is, a whole bunch of people told Rob Reiner, as these other directors dropped out and he decides to do it, you can't do this. You're Meathead from All in the Family. You're the right. comedy guy. Right. You know, because he'd done nothing. All of his movies are comedies up to this right. point, right. including When Harry Met Sally and Princess Bride. And so he went to school. He said he watched every single Hitchcock movie. Mm -hmm. He, like, focused on how does this genre work. And, man, I think he fucking nailed it.
2: Yeah. You know? I think so, too. But all of his movies always have a dramatic moment or situation in them. So I think he already had that muscle. Watching those movies was working out the muscles who becomes – an Arnold Schwarzenegger muscle before you shoot the <laughs> film, you know, in essence. Um, and yeah, you're absolutely right. He nailed it. He totally nailed it. Um, and that's the mark of a good director, in my opinion, or a, a director that's a cut above, is the yeah. ability to work in multiple genres and be successful in those genres uh, with the films you direct. And so certainly he has worked in multiple genres and been successful. And it's and this is one of those examples of that.
0: Uh, you know what just occurred to me is that We've talked about this all the time with actors, but we have never talked about it with a director. And I think it applies perfectly, which is there's so many brilliant comedic actors who make the leap to dramas. Yeah. And we go like, Oh wow. It's so amazing. But we just had Robin Williams from Goodwill hunting Mm -hmm. and and how suited the comedic temperament is to actually doing drama. Cause in a lot of ways, comedy is serious stuff. That's what Rob Reiner is. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And it never occurred to me until you were just speaking that, Oh it's natural for him to move into drama because there's so much drama in comedy. Yeah. You know, absolutely. Um, would you like to get in the movie? Let's do it. Um, so we start with this red castle rock credits and then we go and we hear the sound of the typewriter and then we go right into these images of a cigarette and a match and a champagne glass and they're all in focus and we see James Caan, Paul Sheldon typing behind out of focus yeah. and then he finishes what he's writing he pulls the paper out of the typewriters, all very somber. And he writes the end on the paper and then goes to have his dr- glass of champagne and smoke his cigarette.
2: One of the stories is um, it took them 11 takes to shoot that scene where Paul lights the cigarette and drinks the Dom Perignon because Khan wanted to do a bunch of stuff because he knew he was going to be stuck in bed mm. for a majority of the movie. So he wanted to do a lot of physical actions to, I guess, in his mind act you know, the moments and, and, and Rob Ross just like less, 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 literally you're just blowing out the smoke. That's it. Just enjoy the cigarette, enjoy the, the drink, enjoy that moment that you've finished this novel and you're going to possibly be a new kind of author. That's what that symbolizes. And so finally on the 11th take, they got it. James didn't do too much. And it took them the entire morning until lunch to get the right take they go to lunch, and Sonnenfeld says in between bites of his lunch, you know, this could be your Vietnam. <laughs> you should get out now. Like, get out now if you need to get out now. This is, in essence, saying that to him. Uh, but uh, Rob was like, no, no, this is a good challenge. Uh, you know, a typical <laughs> Rob Reiner fashion. Um, was one of the things I admire about him. Uh, yes, he can be annoying. Yes, he can be grating. But there's a – and he can be arrogant, but there's a – Yes. A real childish desire to be challenged in a good way uh, in, in his creativity. And I love to see that. Uh, and his conversation with Sonnenfeld really proves that in his uh, wanting to go into, on this road with Khan, who is you know not necessarily the easiest actor to right. work with because he's very confident in what he can deliver and what he wants to deliver with the role.
0: Well, l- let me ask you this, John, because yep. as an actor, how difficult is it sometimes to do
2: less? Phenomenally difficult, especially if you're an actor built to be more expressive as I am. The idea of having a director tell you to do less, when you're naturally an emotional uh, person with gestures that is very much your natural way of being, when a director tells you to do less and less and minimal and minimal and minimal, it can feel like you're not really acting. And then it's an insult to the craft that you're just being yourself. Or you're just saying a line so simply, um, but then when you realize once you break through that misconception of it all and go around the other side, kind of like a black hole, kind of like an interstellar, you're going out the other side. Um, you realize that there's a way to do that that is even that is just as challenging, uh, and you can make you can drop levels into it in a way that you hadn't anticipated, and so it's just, it's it's a fear, right? It's a, if I do less, then they'll see through me. If I do all these histrionics, then I'll be able to distract them and they'll believe what I'm doing. And so it's all of that that you kind of confront as you're doing less in a scene um, and relying on your face and relying on micro moves in your face to convey the emotions of the scene.
0: Well, and, and the way I, th- I think about it too, that mm. the first two movies that we did with James Caan, which mm. are Godfather and Brian Song, that's very early in his career, He made a career off of being a dynamic person. Oh, yeah. Thief, rollerball, all that stuff. They're all like, look at all I'm bringing. And so, you know, over and over again, you get reinforced like, this is what you do. This is why you're successful. And now someone says, do nothing. (laughs) Just smoke. That's hard. It is really hard. (laughs) I can understand why he wanted to do more with smoking that cigarette. The only thing I heard from J- about James Kahn's feelings about this movie is that he said, the most talented people I've ever worked with are the nicest people I've ever worked with, and that's part of why I love Misery. Yeah. But that that's one of the few things I heard him say, because I bet this was a transformative experience for him yeah. as an and actor. I, and I would imagine so at the time in his career. Yeah. Right? I mean, it wasn't like Khan was knocking it out of the
2: park all through the 80s. I mean, he'd been a bit hit or miss- um, after his heyday in the seventies. So entering yeah. into a new decade, being the lead in a film like this and, uh, you know, a film based on a, one of the greatest writers of horror ever writers period ever. And then working with a director who had been on a bit of a streak here. Um, sure. I'm sure there was a lot writing uh, on this for himself.
0: And we, the other thing we should say is that all of these things, the match, the cigarette, the champagne, the script and the typewriter, the briefcase, all of these things are going to be important. Yes. Let me ask you a question, Steve. Do do you have a satchel like that to carry your writing in? I am holding it up for you. (laughs) I am a digital guy. So for those of you not watching on video that doesn't exist, I held up my iPhone (laughs) because it's called Dropbox. I have everything on Dropbox. I've always, the moment that things became like computer-y, I am such, if you looked at my office, right, I was actually just cleaning my office before I got on the phone. I am a fucking mess when it comes to organizing papers and like keeping things straight, but my computer is very well organized. <laughs> so yes, it is all digital. That is my satchel. Right on. I love the satchel. The satchel is such an essential. Beautiful part of the movie, man. It's beautiful. Yeah. Uh, speaking of which, he puts it on the seat of his car. And knocks some snow off it. Cause he's leaving this place up in the mountains, wherever he is, yeah. He grabs a snowball and throws it. It hits a tree and says, well, got it. why do you think that's in the movie? Oh, um, that's a good question. I was actually thinking about that when I was watching it this time too. Is
2: it, is it this feeling that, okay. Um, writing that book is the same thing as that moment. Like I still got it. I can still be this great writer. I thought I was going to be before I got lost in the, misery stuff and becoming and as we see later on the, in the conversation with Lauren McCall, becoming a, in essence a slave to this character and having to write all these installments because you know Stephen King said that what you mentioned earlier Steve he didn't want to give this to anybody He because this is a very personal book to him because yeah. this symbolizes where he was at in his life when he wrote the book these expectations of these horror fans of his book a books to that he would just keep writing this kind of stuff and keep upping the ante, and he wanted to do different things. He wanted to expand, you know, the Richard Bachman stuff, him writing under different pseudonyms. This is all stuff he wanted to explore the possibility, as every writer does, of trying something new. Uh, and so, when we catch Paul at this moment, he is he has already written the Death of Misery, as we find out, and this is his new book. And him throwing that snowball so perfectly at the tree, I think, symbolizes for him. I'm still a damn good writer. I still got it. You know.
0: This is why movies are fun, because that is a, that is makes perfect sense. It's a great, great analysis. It's not what I was thinking at all. Because okay. what I was thinking was this is a movie about a physical guy who gets all of his physical stuff taken away from him. Oh, and so at this moment, I still got true. it. I could still throw a baseball. I'm still like an athlete. Right. You know, right. I'm still a man. I'm still a man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh by the way, one other interesting thing, and this is why. As much as I, d- I don't love this book, it, I mean, Stephen King's a great writer, and there's great writing in it, but this is why I'm glad I listened to it, because in the book, it's a Camaro, and here, it is a Mustang. <laughs> and I wouldn't have known that if I hadn't read the book. Well, I think there's a difference between a, a, a Camaro and a Mustang, and sure. and w- I'm curious, do you have a thought about it? I certainly have mine. About no, no, one. please, bring it up. I have I have
2: thoughts, when I think of Camaro, and when I think of Mustang, Mustang is, well, I guess I should say Mustang to me feels... Uh, how can I say, I know people might take this term as offensive, but it feels American, a Mustang. It's American. It's that old school American muscle car. That's what I think. Whereas Camaro, I think the mullet, I think the cigarette behind the ear, I think the the white t-shirt, I think the arrogant slick uh, jerk off that I knew in high school or college, (laughs) uh, whereas the Mustang is more of an old school car that has a history and a, and a legacy in American cars. So that's the way I look at the difference between those two.
0: Well, and th- again, this is what's so interesting about making movies, because when you're making a movie, you're going to decide what kind of car do they b- drive? What kind of cocktail do they drink? What kind of food do they order? What kind of, you know, all the stuff, what kind of shoes do they wear, and all those things to find character. And they're all totally subjective. And for me, the difference between a Camaro and a Mustang is the difference between someone from Maine writing the story and someone from California making the movie. (laughs) I don't know why I feel that way, but (laughs) a Mustang feels more Californian and a Camaro feels more East Coast to me. Okay, all right. Even though there are plenty of Camaros sold in the West Coast and there are plenty of Mustangs, so that's just how I reacted Mm -hmm. emotionally. Um, So he gets in this car. He's uh, driving down this snowy mountain road. This is all shot in uh, Tahoe, by the way. The song that's playing in shot is Shotgun. Uh, which the last time we heard the song "Shotgun," Malcolm X, in a very, very different emotional setting.
2: But can I say both songs? You could, from an analysis point of view, both those songs are foreshadowing. Something a, bad of yeah. the character and and literal foreshadowing with later and with Annie uses oh. a shotgun to kill Richard Farnsworth. So. Which is the worst, by the way. Oh, my God. It is very reminiscent (laughs) to Martin Balsam in in Psycho. So you see his influences from watching (laughs) a little Hitchcock. Yeah.
0: We are on the same page, my (laughs) friend. (laughs) I'm sure we'll bring it up again when we get there. But So I think they do a beautiful, beautiful job of ramping up the tension in this driving sequence Mm. step by step. Where it's like, oh, he's having fun. He's driving. We're listening to some fun music. And, oh, the snow is getting a little bit worse. And, oh, he's driving kind of fast. And oh, maybe this doesn't feel so good. And man, I don't know how good the tires are on this old 65 Mustang. And it's just building and building. We see a sign that says curvy road next 13 miles. By the way, want to know what one of Rob Reiner's biggest fears is? Uh, What? Cliffs, mountains, (laughs) curvy roads. This is scary for him to film Uh and you see him start to swerve and then the car heads off the cliff. There were nine cameras that they had set up to shoot this because they shit. These are the kind of things you don't shoot. Maybe, maybe they only shot it. We're only going to be able to shoot it once. Right. And there's this great POV of the car flipping and then it comes to a stop and now the music is gone and we're just with the sound of the wind and a wide shot of the upside down car in the snow and the words directed by Rob Reiner come up. So let me
2: ask you a question. Hmm. First of all, because, you know, uh, I was just recording an episode with the Geek Buddies and Shannon called me the captain symbolism. Um, <laughs> and it's fair. It's a fair, you know, and he's meant it in a positive way, but certainly I've taken my hits for some of the. Symbolism, I've tried, I've sensed uh, whether I'm right or wrong in the situation. First of all, let me ask you, uh, Steve Morris' question. Do you think this was a self-destructive moment from Paul? Paul sees the warning. It's snowing. He's driving a small-ass Mustang that ain't really known for handling snowy roads. And, in a, and he's about to go deliver this manuscript, which will change his life. And although he's had the cigarette and he has the Don Perignon, it's still kind of scary to change your life. So, was he maybe risking it all? You know how we are as men or humans, genderless. Sometimes we'll do things to kind of test if we really want this to happen. And do we, I wonder if maybe uh, this um, was a bit of a self destructive moment for Paul uh, going too fast down the windy, snowy road. And the second thing, do you think Rob Reiner purposely put his name above the car crash to say, this is either going to work or this is going to be a car crash? I don't know directing this film. I don't know what the result's going to be. Um, because certainly Kubrick used the upside down beetle in um, The Shining to be a fuck you to Stephen King because Stephen King didn't like Kubrick's version or he made it clear he didn't like Kubrick version of The Shining. So
0: – well. That's what that's what that room two thirty seven says. I think. yeah. I don't think that I don't think that is documented that that's why he did it. It's documented in my mind. I'll say that that's right. Now. <laughs> um, in answer to your second question, first, I definitely think that Rob Reiner knew he was going out on a ledge, mm-hmm. and so, I mean, part, I, I, I go back and forth. I think that's a perfectly good symbolism. I also think. Yeah. I do love when the it's very clear the director chose where they want their credit to be. Yeah, right. And it, in a good movie, you know, i yeah. um, like, yeah, it's gonna be over that shot. Back to your first question, I think it's a really interesting one because, and it's really this is the thing because I read the book, I can tell you that that version of Paul Sheldon is much more messed up than our version because we hear all his thoughts. Yeah, and it's when he leaves to go drive down that mountain, he's drunk. Mm. Whereas our Paul Sheldon is not, or as far yeah, as I know. is We not. don't sense that he's drunk. Yeah, good point. Yeah, this guy is cl- and knows that he did something really, really stupid. And the thing, too, is that there's much more about addiction yeah. in, in the book than in the movie. Like, he becomes addicted to the painkillers. There's oh. uh, there's much more of his sort of fucked upness, I would say, yeah. in the book yeah. than there is in the movie. And so I think it's – I hadn't thought about it until you said it, but – but it, it, I don't know why it connects to this question, hmm. but is the, in the book and really the sense in the movie is that the book that he just finished writing is his great book. Mm. Is it actually a great book? We don't know, do we? Well, and that's why, I don't know why that relates to whether or not he was trying to kill himself, but right. as a writer, usually when you finish your thing, you go, I have now written the greatest thing that any human has ever written in the history of all humans. <laughs> is that what you do as a writer? I, oh yeah. Yes. Oh, really? <laughs> but the, I would say the ego, the ego of the writer is like watching, you know, wow. the sine wave of an earthquake. It's like constantly up and down. And so there are moments you go like, I am so great. And then 10 minutes later, you're like, I'm the worst writer that any human, <laughs> no one has ever been so terrible. I'm a fraud and a fool. And and it's very clear at the end of finishing that book, both in the book and the movie, I would okay. say he is like I did it. I wrote the great. I, grew, I wrote the great American novel. Yeah, yeah. But you might not have. I think all creatives go
2: through that, and I wish more creatives would speak about it, so there'd be less conflicts on sets. All creatives think I've just acted the greatest scene ever, and the yeah. next scene I'm the worst actor on the planet. I'm a total or, fraud. Yeah, I'm a total fraud. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Daniel Day Lewis has said this many times that he's always been waiting for them to show up and uh, escort him off a set because he's a fraud as an actor. He's well, always uh, every, every great actor is afraid of being found out of being
0: a fraud. Well, and I'm sure you've had moments where you were on stage and you're like, this is terrible. I'm awful. And you walked off stage and you went to your friends and said, wasn't that terrible? And they're like, Oh my God, you were amazing. <laughs> yes. Yes. And or, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Or, or looking
2: back on a show that I've hosted re- and I'm like, "Ah, oh, fuck. I did a terrible job. And you rewatch it and you're like, oh shit it wasn't that bad but inside my body it was the worst experience
0: yeah i'd say 50 percent of the cinephiles episodes when i'm editing them i'm like Ugh, i'm so I'm terrible this is not working and then if i listen to them later i'll go like oh, it was fine yeah was, oh, yeah. yeah we're a we're so hard on ourselves yeah as creatives. we really are well and, and delusional i mean like says, yeah. they're both parts you know Because sometimes I'll write, and I know we got to move forward, but because we're on like minute six, not even that probably, is that that there are times where I really think I wrote the best thing and I'll give it to someone and they'll look at it and they just won't see the thing that I see. Yeah. They're like, no, but don't you see that? And they're like, okay. (laughs) And speaking of someone reading your stuff, we're going to cut from here back to New York City and the great, the truly great Lauren Bacall. Yes. Yes. (laughs) apparently you know you put out a breakdown which is when you put out these are the roles I'm looking to cast and then agents will submit their actors and say hey would you consider this person and he just got some Lauren Bacall got pitched an agent said would you consider Lauren Bacall can you imagine yeah and Rob Hardy goes like are you kidding (laughs) he says uh, he he says that one of the greatest moments of his life was he went with her to Armani to pick out the outfit that she's wearing in this scene. Wow. So just going shopping for fancy clothes with Lauren Bacall.
2: Well, I mean, you can understand that because in the 80s, she did eight projects. That's it. And none of them were of real note. Yeah. So you can imagine that she was kind of maybe figured back to being an actress, you know, and, so, and that she had a nice run in the 90s was uh, showing up on stuff because I think people started to reappreciate her. Uh, and she wanted to go do
0: more, you know? Yeah. It, it's so weird, the connective tissues to, like, the golden age. You know what I mean? Like, oh, I'm working with someone who was with Bogey, you know? Right. Uh, she asked about the briefcase. When
1: I wrote my first book, I used to carry around on this while I was looking for a publisher. I was a writer, though. You're still a writer. I haven't been a writer since I got in the misery business.
0: So this is a guy... In
2: a lot of pain. Yeah, and I think as I was watching the movie this time, I don't know why you know things occur to you when they occur to you. But I was watching this movie this time, and I was like, that word "misery" throughout oh, yeah. this movie has so many different meanings, depending on who is saying it and when they are saying it. And it's this this film is full of people who are in misery. The two main characters are in misery for different reasons, um, and what that character evokes in them. To get them out of their misery or remind them of their misery, it's
0: fascinating. you know it's honestly so weird that mm. this romantic you know mm. bodice ripper sort of period piece story that the main character's name is misery mm-hmm. is weird, and it's just one of those things that just kind of works and and again. I, I think Stephen King is a great writer. I don't mm-hmm. think he, everything he has written is great. No, no. But I think when Stephen King is good, he's really fucking good. Yeah. But it's very clear when he wrote this book that he was in some pain. Yeah. About who he was and what he was writing.
1: Miss Chastain put braces on your daughter's teeth and is putting her through college. Bought your two houses and floor seats to the Knicks. And what thanks does she get? You go and kill her.
0: Have you ever known anyone that got stuck in doing a thing that... Uh, they didn't really want to be doing i i think most actors
2: who are on tv shows experience that yeah you know and leave and people are always like why'd you leave yeah you know why did why did uh why did david Crusoe leave nypd blue right why did sherry stringfeld leave er and leave e- nypd blue why did and it's you're you're just a, you got to follow your compass and you hit that moment where you're just like i don't want to do this anymore i don't want to be this character anymore it becomes a job. And as much as people may revere it from the outside as fans going, but you're getting paid so much money. It's about creative satisfaction. It really is. And whether you're right or not, who knows? Because everyone's got their own compass. Um, but yeah, I've I've certainly encountered people who are frustrated at what they do in the creative field um, because it's repetitive. It's not satisfying. Uh, and they're just essentially doing it by
0: rote. Yep. And they know how to do it so easily now that it there's no challenge. That's where he is emotionally. Like, he's got to get out of the misery business. And he says he's heading up to Colorado to finish the new book.
1: If I can make this work,
0: I might just have something I want on my tombstone. <laughs> this idea of death right yep. there
2: being presented. Yeah.
0: So one obviously huge difference between the book and the movie is the book never leaves the two of them, never leaves Paul. There's no flashbacks, never cut away to the police. There's no buster character. None of that happens. And what's really interesting about it is I remember when we talked about Jaws Mm -hmm. and that one of the brilliant choices I think Spielberg makes is that in the book, every day they go out on the orca to hunt for the shark. And every Mm -hmm. night they come home and hang out with their families. And the next day they go out again. And in the movie, once they go out, they never come back. Right. Because it's much more intense to have them isolated alone and not go see the outside world. Yeah. I probably would have thought the same choice makes sense here. Mm. And I would have been wrong. This, I think the fact that we get a little bit of relief by coming away from this thing helps. Mm. Yeah. Oh, I agree with you 100%. I think it's it builds the world out more.
2: Mm -hmm. So it makes it feel more like... The whole, that there's an outside world going on and he is stuck in this prison. So it, it makes the prison even more – more, it adds more to the
0: tragedy and the drama of it all. Thank you so much to Marvel Strike Force. We're very, very excited to have you sponsoring this episode. So, we hear the words, Something I Want on My Tombstone, and we cut back to that car in the snow and this kind of upside down, bloody look at Paul Sheldon, semi conscious maybe, and we hear some sounds. We see a crowbar pry the door open. We don't see who it is. We see arms pull him out, give Paul Sheldon mouth to mouth CPR. He starts to breathe. <laughs> These arms grab the briefcase, and then we see Annie carrying him up the snowy hill and disappears into the snow. Yeah. Then we hear kind of Paul's breathing, blurry images, and we hear the words, I'm your number one fan. One of the other major differences between the book and the movie is that in the book, you essentially know from page one that Annie is a crazy serial killer. Oh, wow. Right from the beginning. There's no like easing into it it's oh my god this person's gonna kill me in this we're gonna figure it out as time goes along Mm -hmm. step by step as paul figures it out right now he's barely conscious he's trying to focus
1: you're gonna be just fine i'll take good care of you
0: and then she repeats
1: i'm your number one fan
0: he looks up and then we have this low angle and our first real image of kathy bates
1: Mm
0: -hmm. i'm gonna say right now she totally earned this fucking Oscar. Oh, yeah, man. She her performance in this is astounding. Yeah. And also credit to the hair and makeup. Oh, yeah. And credit to
2: the costumer because that is believable close. The hair, the way it's done, it is um, what are they? Was it Whistler's painting or whatever it is? Whistler's it mother? Is, huh, was that Whistler's mother? Yeah, Whistler's mother. Yeah. You could see this woman being related to Whistler's mother, and it's just—it's it's the scarier side of of the salt of the earth. Yes, it's, it's, yeah, the, po- it's the poisonous salt of the earth. The poisonous salt of the earth. Yes, which I have experienced on more than one occasion living in, in living in the South, and so yes, this is very believable that a person like this w- would exist in the way she exists. I come from that hospital.
1: The blizzard was too strong. I couldn't risk trying to get you there. I tried calling, but the phone lines are down.
0: And she kind of tells him he's going to be okay. He's going to be able to walk, that she popped his shoulder back in.
1: What I'm most proud of is the work I did on those legs. Considering what I had around the house, I don't think there's a doctor who could have done any better.
0: And as she says this, she slowly rolls back his covers, and he Not- gets the first image, mm. the first look at his legs. Yeah. And the music is ominous. Uh, by the way, the composer is Mark Scheinman, and he it's, it's great, this score. Yeah. And what's interesting is that as she rolls down the covers, revealing his legs, he looks away. Yeah. I can't imagine what it's like to see your body looking like that. Yeah. The other thing is, is what Rob Reiner is real smart about is you don't show that shot for very long because the longer you look at it, the more you'll notice that it's makeup. (laughs) When it's only on screen for a second, it just looks messed up. Yeah. And then we cut to the sheriff's station and there is Richard Farnsworth. I love Richard Farnsworth. I adore him. He is so great. You can't even call
2: what he does half the time acting, because you don't know if he's acting or not. The way he delivers lines is the exact way he delivers them in everything you ever see him in. He is a beat behind in the interactions, yet there's an earnestness and a realness to his delivery. So... You don't necessarily fault the beat behind so it's it's a fascinating
0: thing and he does it here as well well and none of this is in the book yeah and so all of this is william goldman and rob reiner which you could see because these are both charming funny witty writers you know you know and how long does it take for you to like the character of buster yeah Um, seconds yeah yeah you're
1: in just right away i'd like to speak to the silver creek chief of police or sheriff which one of them do you want? Whichever one's not busy. Well, I'm pretty sure they're both not busy, Miss Sindel, since they're both
0: me. And she is worried about her client. And she says, and what I, what I great love about the writing, too, is that she's embarrassed about making the call.
1: I feel like a fool calling you, but uh, I think one of my clients, Paul Sheldon, might be in some kind of trouble. You mean Paul Sheldon the writer? Uh-huh. He's your client, huh? Everybody sure likes those misery books.
0: So A, that tells us the guy's really famous. Yeah. And we also find out he, he's also famous for coming to this area of the mountains. Yeah.
1: I understand he's been up here the last six weeks. Uh, not quite. I just called there and they uh, they said he checked out last Tuesday.
0: And then, I, again, I love this. This is the little piece that separates good writing from from okay writing, mm. which is she could just say, I'm worried about him. He's missing. And then we would get all the information we need to get for the movie. Right. But instead she says,
1: <sighs> I hate that I made this call. Tell me I'm being silly.
0: And that's a character yeah, that it's we can understand.
1: Tell you what I'll do. Nothing's been reported out here, but I'll put his name to our system. If anything turns up, I'll call you right back.
0: What is his system? It's all paper and stuff, yes. Yeah. He writes it on a post-it and puts it, it on his bulletin yeah. board. It's
2: Steve's paper system.
0: It's exactly. not Steve's computer system. It's not My computer my, my computer system's very organized. Um, and gets off the phone with her, and then in comes Virginia, his wife, which is Fancen, Francis Sternhagen. Yeah, I love Francis Sternhagen as well. It's a great, great some those two.
1: We got a phone call. Busy morning. Yeah, work, work, work. Virginia, when was that blizzard? Last Tuesday. Why? No reason.
0: Uh, okay, here's the thing. and Because we've already spoiled that this guy's going to die. Yeah, 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 sadly. He is so freaking smart, except where he's a fucking moron. <laughs> well, okay. I mean, he doesn't... If he had said to Virginia what he's thinking throughout this whole process... Yeah. Maybe he wouldn't be dead. Well, I... Uh, but I think that adds a nice twi- twist to their relationship. Like, I love it. I love everything about their relationship. Yeah. Uh, I just it, am very upset that he dies in this movie. Uh, <laughs> way, fair enough. Right.
2: But I think he's like a Columbo cop. Like He plays totally. stupid, but he's smarter than he actually seems. Oh, yeah. And I'll, and I'll throw another twist in there. I think Lauren Bacall making that choice or what? I think that's a choice because she knows how to play this situation. Oh, yeah that as an agent she knows how to play the vulnerability so she can get the down home local cop great to connect to her because she's the new york city agent and there's preconceived notions about the new york city agent the smartest thing she can do to get them to help her is to play the kind of helpless female with the vulnerability so you get these old school dudes who are willing to go that extra mile because they don't feel like they're being forced to or
0: guilted into it you know that's so great. And it just mm-hmm. illustrates something we've already been talking about, which is that there, it's all these choices. It's yeah, yeah. Is a choice. It's all the so so the choice to have her say, I'm am I being silly? And then the choice to have her, that be a character that is using that. So, okay. you know, am I being silly to manipulate? Yeah. This is what makes movies really good. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Um, we cut to a close up of her shaving his neck. <laughs> oh, man. And, and because we're in a horror film and because we know this is because you watch the trailer, you yeah. know, this is a crazy person is so scary. And by the way, this is another directing challenge is that Kathy Bates is a theater person. And what does she love doing? Rehearsing. Yes. James Caan, movie guy. <laughs> he doesn't want to rehearse at all. Nope. He's like, can't we just wing it? <laughs> and Rob Reiner is in the middle trying to get her as much rehearsal as she needs to deliver her performance, yeah. but but some actors get stale. I mean, some actors and, I, and I've watched this happen in real life of yeah. this person needs to rehearse it 12 times and then they're right. going to nail it and this other actor, they're good on the first two takes and then it gets stale. Right. That's hard to navigate.
1: I guess it was kind of a
0: miracle you finding me.
1: <laughs> no, it wasn't a miracle at all. In a way, I was following you.
0: And then she talks about how he's the favorite writer, and she knew that he was up writing at the lodge, and that sometimes she would just drive up and look up at the light in the cabin.
1: I try to imagine what was going on in the room of the world's greatest writer. Say I nice spot again, i didn't it. Don't move now. Wouldn't want to hurt this neck.
2: This is the beginning of the like. What is going on here, right? This is the moment because she's saying oh, it wasn't an accident, you know, and says, oh, were you following me? And well, no, I just know where you live and I know where you're at and I'm here. So when you finish the movie in retrospect, you're breaking it down. You can ask yourself, did she move to this place? Because she knew Paul always came to this place when he was writing. Mm. Is this her way of trying to get closer? Um, And I don't want to say she staged the act because there's no way to prove that, but like, the fact that she came upon the car i wonder if she was watching him on her binoculars or whatever and saw the accident herself and then kind of got herself like there's a scene missing where maybe you'd have it in the book where she's figuring this all out what she's
0: going to do with him you know so well- and they called this, I think they called it something like calibrating her crazy, mm-hmm. which is like yeah. you don't want to show too much too early. You right. want to give no, little hints. Well, and there's also the difference between us, the audience, who knows we're at a scary movie yeah. watching these things happen and Paul, the somewhat on drugs injured guy whose life was saved, maybe isn't picking up on it. Yeah, yeah. right. Because no, he's drugged and he's getting pain and all. Yeah, exactly. So he just hears world's greatest writer and he goes, i oh, say that part again. <laughs> you know, to be kind of cute. And she talks about You know, saving him. And this is, by the way, one of the really interesting things about this movie is what happens to Paul Sheldon is obviously horrible and terrible and, you know, awful in every conceivable way. If she doesn't find him, Paul Sheldon died. Yes, very true, 100%. Because
1: now you're alive and you can write more books. Oh, Paul, I've read everything of yours, but the misery novels, I know them all by heart, all eight of them. I love them so.
0: And he starts asking questions about the phone lines because he wants to reach his daughter and his agent. Mm. Uh, And she says, well, I'll keep trying them for you. And this is apparently this is kind of what um, Warren Beatty helped with is Mm. the tweaking of this kind of what does Paul think she's trying to do? And how is she slowing down his expectations in terms of the phone lines and the storms?
2: I have a weird feeling. That Warren Beatty has been trapped by a woman before and had (laughs) (laughs) the
0: situation. I
2: I mean, it might've been Madonna. I'm not sure. Oh oh my God. I hadn't even thought of that. Jesus Christ. All right. Yeah. Cause he was dating her around this time. If this is Dick Tracy time, he was absolutely dating her around this time.
0: (laughs) And I'm not going to say that I know for certain that Madonna tied Warren Beatty up at one point, but I mean, all signs point to yes. It's certainly possible. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Listen, you never get commentary like this anywhere else but the <laughs> cinema files, right. that's what no I'm telling you. Is,
2: no one else is crazy enough to say this nonsense.
0: Oh.
1: I noticed in your case, there's a new Paul Sheldon book and I wondered if maybe You want to read it? If, if you wouldn't mind.
0: And he says in his charming way. Well, I do
1: have a very hard and fast rule as to who reads my stuff at this early stage. Only well, My editor, my agent, and anybody that saves me from freezing the death in a car wreck.
0: And it's sweet. And the thing about Kathy Bates's performance is at this moment, it is so sweet. Yeah. You know? And and then you could see the pain hit Paul. And she says,
1: Boy, it's like clockwork the way your pain comes. I'll get you your novel, Paul. Forgive me for prattling away and making you feel all oogie.
0: And it's the word oogie, and then it's the it's the wide-angle lens on her at that moment that makes her look small and round and odd in the frame.
2: What's
1: it about? I don't know. I know it sounds crazy, but I haven't written anything but misery for so long. Why don't you read it? And you can tell me what you think it's about. Maybe you can come up with a title.
0: And she comes in beaming and laughing and says,
1: like I could do that.
0: (laughs) Uh, Buster, the sheriff is up at the silver Creek Raj. Checking in on what happened with Paul. And basically,
1: he's always been a good guest. Never makes a noise. Never bothers a soul. I sure hope nothing's happened to him. So do I.
0: So no information there. Yeah. Annie is feeding Paul soup. And she says,
1: I know I'm only 40 pages into your book, but.
0: And she pauses. do you get you i'm sure you get gotten this acting or with the podcast and stuff but i definitely have gotten this writing or doing a film oh you saw my film yeah um and that pause (laughs) that pause oh yeah it's almost like you want to just walk away like okay okay i got it (laughs) you just walk i don't even want to hear anymore you know
2: finish the sentence just let me let me walk away here yeah. Well,
0: it, and you can feel them debating as soon as they're debating how to express the thing to you. It's like, well, we're, we're done, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um. And so he sees that. And what's so nuts about this is you see Paul this time and later on take on the the role of I'm a writer with a critic who just the editor just read my work, the agent, the critic, the you know someone I'm about to take criticism, even though the situation is so bizarre.
1: The swearing, Paul. There, I said it.
0: The profanity bothers you.
1: It has no nobility.
0: One of the great joys, if that's the right word, of Annie's character is that this is a heinously violent serial killer, literally, yeah. who is so uncomfortable with swearing. She's so, her manner is so sweet. She's so homey and. Like that stuff, that contrast is part of what makes this character so great. But it's all an act, you know, because
2: she's conditioned herself to act that way in order to hide her more darker impulses, even though she's acted on them, as we find out later when he goes through the scrapbook, uh, or it's an intimated that he, she's acted on these impulses. This is all an act. She like most people who are unstable, She has convinced herself that she is the good person. Well, hell I'll stress that out. Like most people, if not all people, we are the heroes of our own story in her unstable mind. Her perception is that she is the hero of this story and her bringing up the swearing is like the open is the first um, shot across the bow of a criticizing her hero. B looking at something and having to anal- and having to accept that her hero is capable of writing things like this, which destroys her perception of her hero or threatens the perception of her hero. And uh, the way she reacts when he gives her a matter of fact response here saying like a lot of people, you know, from the, I'm from the streets. I'm from, I'm a kid from the streets. We all talk like this. If she takes it to mean everybody in the world. and immediately dials in. And I will say this, and again, this is me always looking deeper into stuff, whether it's right or wrong. I think she is threatened by this book because this book is Paul moving on from misery. And so destroying it, finding issues with it, finding criticism with it is her way of of, uh, lodging her protest in an indirect
0: way at what Paul is is doing. So I would agree. I'm trying to think of how I want to put it. Mm. Like, so is she believed that she's the hero of her story? Totally. Yeah. Is she um, in denial of all the horrible, evil things she does? Yes. Hmm. I probably wouldn't say that it's an act, and and this is okay. th- this is the distinction I would make is that I j- I think it's like it's cognitive dissonance is that she doesn't see you know murdering babies as making her a bad person, right? Because she doesn't look at that. Right. She sees people that swear as really bad. Yeah, yeah, yeah like she's built up and and, I, and so i don't think it's an act that she hates that's a profanity. Fair so yeah yeah okay i think she genuinely hates profanity i think she genuinely wants to live in this homey cutesy she really loves liberace you know what i mean she loves all the things that she loves and religion and religion absolutely yeah, yeah, yeah. she's just in total denial of the disconnect like the idea and there are people that are like this oh, i mean that that yes that well that that are just so offended by profanity and things like this Mm. and totally not paying attention to the heinous fucking things they're supporting you know yeah so and what paul says is what you said is like he's like they're slum kids i was a slum kid and he says i want to focus on this word he says everybody talks like that now what i think paul means is that everybody who grows up in this environment right talks like that right but what Annie hears is that everyone not only does everyone in the world talk like that, but that implies that you're saying that I talk like that mm-hmm. and I do not talk like that. And then we see and this is there's so much technical things going on before we get to what she says yeah. and to Kathy Bates's performance, which is amazing. <laughs> but first of all, we go to a 21 millimeter lens, which is a wider lens that distorts oh. the face a little bit. And it's very close to her. She really yeah. like feels like she's coming at you. Yeah. yeah. OK, that's a great move. And the second thing is music is super dissonant. And up till this point, Mark Sherman had written sort of melodic things, things with light motifs that we talked about. If we talk about John Williams and stuff like that, he said, this is the first time he tried to write things as just what, how he's feeling emotionally while watching it. He was thinking of himself as an accompanist so that his job, rather than scoring the film is that he's playing along with the film as if the film was like a singer, you know, Oh, interesting. And so, and what he did, and, and this is also when he started working on synthesizers. Mm-hmm. So for those of you who don't, who have never seen how this works, and this, you know, software has obviously gotten super, super sophisticated in the last 30 years, but the way it works is you could play on a synthesizer and you can make the synthesizer, which is a keyboard, pretend to be the drums or pretend to be piano or trumpet or violin or whatever. Right. And its ability to to reproduce those sounds back in 1990 were pretty weak. But you could still do it. And what you could do was, since you can't actually play every single note played by every uh, instrument in the orchestra all at the same time with your 10 little fingers, is you would play one pass as the piano. And you play one pass as the viola and one pass as the flute. And you would do it so you're replaying over and over and over again, right? Right. And then the computer is writing down everything that you played so that then they could produce a score out of this. And so what he was doing was he was just playing whatever he felt as he watched and then play as one instrument and then playing it again and playing something else while listening to what he played the first time and then playing. Now he's got two tracks that he's listening to as he goes through it a third time and a fourth time and a fifth time. And what he described it as is that he would just kind of plunk away, you know, like a kid just pl- hitting the keys of the piano and what he described for this one was he wanted it to feel like the sound of swirling bees and then what happens is in particular today when you use this kind of software it literally will put out a score with all of the instruments marked down and all of the notes exactly as you played them that you could just l- literally hand to the orchestra in 1990, that did the software wasn't so sophisticated, so then it went to computer people who could translate all the plunking around he did right. and turn that into the score with musical notes. So then he takes that, and now we have a score that's orchestrated and we he goes to actually have real musicians perform it with real instruments. And they look at it and they go, oh, this is fascinating. Were you working in a 12-tone, you know, way of working, uh-huh. which is like sort of modern uh, classical music? Was this, are you referencing Schopenhauer here and all this like highfalutin stuff? And he's like, I literally don't know what I was you're talking about. I was just going <laughs> plonk, 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 watching the scene by how I felt, <laughs> like a good craftsman, just kind of figuring
2: it out, figuring it along. out.
0: Yeah, yep. yep. And it's great. The music is great, and the shot is great, and Kathy Bates, man, she says,
1: "What do you think I say when I go to the feed store in town? Oh, now Wally, give me a bag of that effing pig feed and ten pounds that bitchly cow corn." In the bank, do I tell Mrs. Bollinger, oh, here's one big bastard of a check. Give me some of your Christing money?
2: It's crazy. No, no, it's crazy because you look at this and you're like, okay, how can I say this correctly with it? Because where's the explosion coming from, right? Where is the desire to take such grand offense? Where has she learned this as an impulse? Uh, That's what I look at when I'm seeing her explode in this moment. And there's just such a strong response after she's just been so in love with Paul, mm-hmm. there is this desire to put him and judge him through this prison. And so I find that to be so fascinating as we watch this scene unfold with, with her, because like, uh, I, Steve, you n- know this. I mean, I'm sure you've experienced this. Like this is nerd rage uh, and we've seen nerd rage come out. We've seen rage come out from people Uh, Certainly more videos online and stuff of people like going crazy out of nowhere for nothing. You know, I see someone who's in the wrong place. I'm just going to lose it. Or going crazy in stores and whatever off of being rejected for whatever or wearing a mask. We see that kind of uh, spike in reaction. So this moment is fascinating for that, for sure.
0: Okay. So... (laughs) We talked about the lens. Yeah. We talked about the music. Yeah. <laughs> We're talking about Kathy Bates and Nerd Rage. And we still haven't gotten to, to Jimmy Khan. And I'm thrilled because I 100% agree this deserves this level of analysis yeah. in this moment. So I think that she has constructed in her mind yeah. a way the world is supposed to work. I actually learned this term from my father-in-law as he had been in some therapy or something. And they described him as an ego idealist. And an ego idealist is a person who has constructed an image of how the world is supposed to work in their head and are constantly disappointed when the world fails to live up to their expectations. There's a lot of people like this, though. Oh, yeah. yeah. And I think that Annie Wilkes is an extreme version of that. Oh, is yeah. that whether it's you didn't get out of the cock a car or it's people don't swear like this? She is like, This is how you are supposed to be. This right. is what you are supposed to do. Right. And anything that, and in particular, in this moment, it's not just that he says people in the world swear. Yeah. He, she felt like he said that you swear. Right. And she's like, Oh no, that is not who I am. And I th- find it amazing that in her demonstration of what it would sound like if she swore. Yeah. She does not swear. <laughs> no, she does not swear. No, but no. she doesn't say, you know, the, you know, the, this, you know, the, the fucking cow feed or anything like that. She, the, and the way that she swear, I still remember my parents didn't swear when I was a little kid. Mm. And then I started to, you know, obviously swear. And then yeah. in high school was the first time I swore in front of my parents. Right. And then there was this certain moment, maybe when I was 17 or 18, where my parents started to swear in front of us. And the first time my mom said shit in my hearing, right. it sounded so bizarre because it was very clear that it was not a word that she was comfortable with. You know, my dad did not have those restraints in Spanish.
2: <laughs> he swore a lot growing up. In, uh, I mean, I've never used because I've never cussed in Spanish has never felt the inclination to cuss in Spanish. So uh, it was a different experience,
0: but I never picked up those words but it's, yeah that's they've never they've never flown out of you ricky ricardo style no
2: no <laughs> never because i think because it's not my first language english is my first language so i cuss in my first language and i just would never think to cuss in in spanish in a situation whether dealing with my family or dealing with my outer family or dealing with uh, people that i grew up uh, who i know speak spanish it just wouldn't occur to me to cuss in spanish
0: it's weird yeah, it's- very interesting.
2: I know. I wonder, I think it might be a kind of reverence
0: I have for the language that I don't want to do that. You know, I, I don't know. I, I feel like we need to make this happen on some level. We got to <laughs> like get a Spanish speaking script and just have set up so you could just go off. Yeah, I don't know if I would sound authentic, though. That's the irony of it. You all. sound think... like my mom. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. I don't know if I would sound
2: authentic. Because um, like, Eddie Murphy taught me how to cuss. And so I've always cussed at
0: that kind of level. So let's talk about the other side of this moment, which is it's that my big bastard of a check, but anyway, your yes, big bastard of a check watch Jimmy con and what he is taking in as this is happening. Cause it, so much of this movie is the slow realization of just how much trouble he's in. Yeah. Yep. You know, And up until this moment, it's sort of like, well, this is an odd situation I find myself in. I'm really grateful I'm not dead. Yeah. I guess this person saved my life. She's a little weird, but okay. Right. She's a fan. I've met weird
2: fans before. I'll
0: navigate out of this situation. As soon as the road's up and up or I can call somebody, I'll be out of the situation. And then, yeah, in this moment with this whole monologue and her spilling the soup in particular.
1: There! Look there! See what you made me do?
0: Right. She blames him. Yeah.
1: Oh, Paul, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. Sometimes I get so worked up. Can you ever forgive me?
0: Fine. Please don't kill me. Please don't kill me. And then she says, and dude, you know, we say these are the nicest words in the universe and the most lovely thing you could ever hear. She says,
1: I love you, Paul.
0: Oh man, the
2: way she does it. And look again, shout out to Rob Reiner and the placement of the camera and the lenses that he's using. But when she turns and says it at the door, there's just this like, oh, my God. You know, you just the, the utter fear. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. It's, it's like Gone Girl. This is like a this is a cousin to Gone Girl. You, you are trapped in this situation uh, um, at a woman's behest. And your entire
0: life depends on whether this woman allows you to live every second of every day that you're in her care you know just in the normal world when someone says i love you when you didn't weren't prepared to be hearing that it's scary it is (laughs) much less trapped to a bed where you can't move yeah uh and she kind of tries to soften it by saying your mind your creativity that's all i meant (laughs) and then she smiles she puts a bowl down she heads out and we cut back to him i will say looking suddenly scared shitless
2: (laughs) well i think this is that we talked about annie like I don't think she's as unself-aware as you think she is. I think she's very aware, which makes her more of a danger. She's aware of what she, the tactics she is using. She's aware of who she is and how she thinks and how it comes across. You know, I have a friend, um, uh, one of my patrons, he is uh, someone who has a hard time reading social cues. And so this has been a, an education for me to see him because he is initially he was uh, kind of, um, um, how can I say this? Not offending people, but he was getting into all of verbal debate or arguments, I guess, with people um, because he couldn't understand what they were trying to say. And he wasn't trying to offend them, but he he had a certain way of delivering things. So he, we, we had to understand where he was going. And then he had to understand how his words were being taken. So it was a fascinating exploration of of it all and i don't but, but he was unaware of it i don't think she's unaware of it i think she's aware of what her personality is and how she comes across so because you don't have that gear to soften unless you're aware or someone has told you annie you're really creepy or annie you're you're doing that thing again and you adjust in order to maintain a, a certain level of social interaction with that
0: person i totally agree 100 agree with you but, well because Annie actually didn't get sentenced to prison for murdering a whole bunch of babies. Right. Psycho person like her knows how to navigate in the world. And so I do, I do agree. I don't think she was in control when she went off on the profanity thing a moment ago. Oh no, no, no. I don't think so either. But I definitely think she's aware of, manipulating the situation and again this goes to the differences between the novel in the novel you're hearing paul's monologue throughout this whole thing going oh she's thinking this and doing this and i think this and i'm in big trouble and blah blah blah." as opposed to the how we put ourselves in paul and in annie by looking at their faces and their reaction shots and what they're doing yeah yeah, yeah. it has a really different effect that way well it's like um house of the dragon now right i mean the book it's
2: based on is told through the eyes of the maesters they're the ones telling the story. And you could argue they might be unreliable narrators because they have their own points of views, their own, right. their own, they're perceiving things through their own prisms. What the show is doing is fleshing out these um, interactions and these character beats and these stories. So they're much more fuller than what you've read in the George R.R. R. Martin book that it's based on. Same thing here. You know, Paul's perception who you could argue is, you know, it's a skewed perception of what happened. It may be overall accurately correct, but his perception of the smaller moments and the meanings of those things and the cues, those are through his eyes. The film is giving us our, well, a, a, a window on all of this, and we are deciding what's the creepy part, what isn't the creepy part, which is great. You know, The audience is
0: participating in this. All right, now you forced me to go on two digressions. <laughs> did I force you? Yes, you did. You did. You literally from San Diego twisted my arm behind my back. <laughs> First thing, so I've been I've been watching House of the Dragon. I haven't watched the finale yet. Okay, as we recorded this, but I have been listening to your spoiler reviews. Okay. I did read that book. Okay, it was so fucking boring. Yeah. For exactly the reason that you described. Exactly. There's no. It's just like this happens to this happens and then Damon and this Damon and this Egan and a different Egan. And, you know, this person has a dragon and they lost it. It's like, I don't know. I was so bored. Yeah. And now watching the show and the help of listening to you guys, too, I can remember things from the book and going, oh, now the book is more interesting because I have faces and emotions and right. put to it, yeah. which aren't in the book as far as I was concerned. Here's the second digression which is Game of the Throne Game of Thrones but it really relates to what we're talking about okay. which is that I read those books first and I and then watched the show and the one thing the show can't reproduce is that in the book each chapter is from a different character's perspective. Oh yeah yeah. yeah. And so you only see things that that character saw and so mm-hmm. you might see Jamie Lannister but you don't know what he's thinking because you're only seeing this from Bran or from Ned or from yeah, one yeah, of these yeah. other people. And so as you shifted perspectives, you shifted, you don't really know what the truth is because it's always unreliable narrators. Right. And you're always locked into one way of seeing those events. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and so the big thing, again, spoiler alert for this old series and this old book, but the greatest turn I've ever read in, in the history of all literature is making me like Jamie Lannister in the third, second or third book of Game of Thrones. Yeah. And the reason is because he's the most horrible, evil fucking person that you could possibly imagine. And you never see anything from his perspective in the first book. Everything is from all the other characters' perspective. So when you get, I think it's in the second book and it says, Jamie, at the beginning of the chapter, you're like, what the fuck? (laughs) I hate this guy. And then as you live in his thought process for a while, you're like, by the end of the book, you're like, oh my God, I love this guy. Right. And there is no way that the TV show could have that because it's not in people's perspectives because you see Jamie's face and you're looking at the actor and you're seeing them react to stuff. And so you already had some sympathy for that guy because it's a show rather than a book. And this is the opposite phenomenon. Right. Is that because I had so much of Paul's thoughts, I actually am involved in a totally different way from the way I'm involved by looking at his face and watching him react. Yeah. Yeah. It's just different. It would be know? fascinating to watch or to read Annie's
2: point of view of all oh of my these God, things yes. until she dies, right? I mean, that would be fascinating of like cuz she knows so much about him, yeah, that she might know certain things that he is doing in certain ways and certain times, there's certain things he's done, you know, the way that probably in interviews I'm sure Annie has picked up on his cues of how much he's exhausted about writing about misery i'm sure there's these little offhand comments he's probably made in interviews that in annie's mind come across a certain way and of course in her mind later on she is trying to save him from himself she's trying to make him a better person whether she's right or not of course is up to her or anyone else to decide but so yeah, I think we decided Annie's yeah, wrong. Yeah, well, I, I, I'm sure.
0: kind of comfortable. Fair enough, enough. Fair enough. Yeah, but like in her mind, why is she doing the things that she's doing?
2: So it's it would be very interesting to explore that. I, well, I,
0: I so first of all, Stephen King, I assume you're listening right now. Oh, yes. think this is a great book sure. for you to write. Is to write Misery, the Annie Wilkes story. Yeah, but because the thing about it that's so fascinating is, well, what was planned out? Right. What, that's what we never what, see. Yeah. How did she have all this in motion so well? Yeah. And when did she decide what? And what did and what was she? So we know that Paul is observing her and figuring out stuff from her. Well, she's observing him. Yeah. You know, what is she thinking? And what? Oh, it'd be a really interesting book, actually. A thousand percent agree with you. Yeah. Yeah. It'd be a very interesting book. Um, well, I you're a thousand percent agreeing with your own idea. Oh, wow, so. true. Fair point. <laughs> <laughs> we cut back to the police truck driving, Virginia is driving, uh, Buster's in the passenger seat, and we see that next 13 miles curvy road sign. And then she puts his her hand on his knee and he looks and he says,
1: Virginia, when you're in this car, you're not my wife. You're my deputy. Well, his deputy would rather be home under the covers with the
2: sheriff. I like this kind of sexual testing. Love it. Yeah, level here between them because they're older people. You wouldn't think it would be there. But, you know, Frances Sternhagen, who's such a good actress, just playing it in, with that voice of hers that's so yeah. unique it works so well in, in what is going on here. And you can tell she was probably the, I'm sure she convinced him to marry her. I'm sure he was, she was the one that like knew from the beginning, this idiot, he's going to have to realize how much he loves me. And she's the one that's been kind of, you know, navigating the relationship or running the relationship, even and letting him think that he's running the relationship. You know, she strikes me as that kind of woman.
0: Well, and, and the thing is, is like, again, Great screenwriting, great directing, great acting. Yeah. How many lines do we need to love this relationship and get it?
2: hundred percent correct. hundred percent correct.
0: That's why you. Ca- that's why
2: casting is so important. You absolutely. find absolutely the two people that are immediately likable and you connect them together.
0: Well, yeah. Well, and I would challenge any fucking writer. You write those four lines. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you try to come up with four lines yeah. that make you fall in love with and get a relationship. Yeah. Good luck. Exactly.
2: <laughs> it's really, really hard. And for you old school people, that is Cliff Claven's mom, Frances Sternhagen. Oh, those I, of course kids. she is.
0: Yeah. Thank Mark you. Ma Claven. She was great as Ma Claven. Um, and then he yells, stop. And she, she stops and he gets out of the car and sees a broken branch. Mm-hmm. And she says,
1: Could have been the weight of the snow. Yeah. Could have been a rotten branch. Could have been the wind. Could have been a lot of things.
0: And then he goes down this slope. And we, of course, we know this is the right spot. Yeah. Yeah. And he kind of stumbles, and he falls, and he ends up in a big, deep hole. Uh, By the way, I always forgot that Richard Farnes was a stuntman. Yes. That's how he started his career.
1: Need some help? No, I'm enjoying myself. Thank you.
0: Their banter is so good. Their banter is just so good. It's great. And he climbs up the hill, and, of course, the camera pulls back and pulls back, and there's the tire.
1: You really think Sheldon's out there? I hope not. If he is, he's dead.
0: And then there's this shot. And the shot is the camera kind of speeding towards them on the side of the road. And then just as it gets to him, the camera turns. And we are looking at Annie Wilkes driving her car. It is an amazing shot.
2: It is. And she is not betraying anything. So you don't know if... If she's registering the fact that they have found the car, that they're in the exact location, she's just driving straight ahead. So in her mind, we don't know if she's processing this or if she's noticing it, not giving anything away, and already planning how she is going to deal with either of them if they
0: happen to knock on the door asking for Paul. And Rob Reiner says very clearly, this is Barry Sonnenfeld shot. He, oh, oh, really? he said, oh. yeah, he said, I didn't have this idea. Not only does he say, I didn't have this idea. He said, I would never have had this idea. Huh. My my brain doesn't work that way. I don't think that way. Is that this is why you need to have a great cinematographer. And as a guy who also, my brain does not work that way. Like, I, I'm so thrilled that he gives credit where credit is due. Mm-hmm. And that he get, is that Barry came to him and said, I want to do this kind of shot. And this is not a easy shot. This took oh. probably half a day. to set up this one shot, and it is great. It's very Hitchcockian, even. Well, this is, I mean, there's a lot of Hitchcock in this movie.
1: Look what I got.
0: And she pulls out the book.
1: They had it at the store, Paul. There was a whole batch of them there. And as soon as I saw it, I slammed my money down. I got the first copy.
0: And then he says. And the roads are open.
1: Well, the one to town is, but that's about it.
0: And of course, this is a slight mistake, because then he says. The phone's working.
1: Well, mine's still out, but the ones in town are working just fine. I call that agent of yours.
0: And she wants to talk about the book, and he's trying to talk about his daughter. Yeah.
1: The agent said she would tell her you were okay, but I'm afraid you'll have to wait till tomorrow if you want to talk to her yourself.
0: Does Paul believe this?
2: Um, it's a good question. I don't think he 100% believes it. Um, I because, think he, I think he
0: wants to believe
2: it. Yeah, fair enough. Because he's. She's thinking on her toes and the micro pauses are the giveaways. And those, when you're, when you're questioning somebody or you're questioning a situation, it's the micro pauses that will always give you away. And you see her, she's thinking quickly on her feet, by the way, she's delivering great responses, but it's just that moment. But she is, but he is catching her because he's a writer. He's he's naturally incisive as a writer. So um, he is catching her clues that she is dropping casually without thinking and pressing her on them and well, uh, she's found but he's found a worthy foe because she's thinking quickly on her feet
0: to cover herself the likelihood i think at this moment that these things could be true is it's really fading you know yeah. yeah um i don't think she called the orthopedic surgeon at all no well and the thing is if you call a hospital and say i have a wounded man in my house right they're gonna come get him yeah 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 of course you know or or there or there'll be be a plan to come get him it's not gonna be like okay yeah you should be fine see you later you know there's
2: liability issues right because if you call a hospital and tell them that the hospital is now complicit in a way if the care is somehow not effective if they can get out there and and
0: take care of the person yeah um it's the next morning and and one thing we should point out they shot for weeks and weeks in this room really i mean the whole movie almost the whole movie, is in the fucking room yeah you're right It's mostly on a soundstage, Um, and the thing is, is this is, again, where you need a great cinematographer, because it can't be boring. So every time they're shooting it, they're shooting different lenses, different angles, moving the camera in slightly different ways, Mm. and she's thrilled with the book. She's on page 75.
1: I guess that means it's okay. No. No, it isn't. It's, oh, poo. I can't think of any words. Would great be insulting?
0: I can live with great. I'll
2: settle
0: for great. And what's so funny about that is he's still the writer who wants praise, of course, even from the fucking serial killer who's trapped him. The ego must be soothed, man. It must be satiated. I I remember when I was in uh, Cal and I directed like my first good play that I directed, and it it did well and people liked it. And there was this one guy who was a graduate uh, director, and I had acted in a play of his. And I hated his directing. I mm-hmm. thought he was terrible. And he came to see my play. And afterwards I said, hey, you know, Phil, what'd you think? And he said, oh, it, you know, it's all right. <laughs> and I was so hu- upset that this guy who I thought was terrible. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He didn't like my play. <laughs> and I had a whole bunch of people who really liked it. And all what could I focus on? The the one guy that didn't like it. Yeah, that's the terrible truth of the artist.
1: No, it's not just great; it's perfect.
0: And here's the thing: I thought, is he thinking right now about how this book is going to end? I don't think he's gotten that far in his mind, just because he doesn't know how
2: obsessed she quite mm. is with the character. Is she obsessed with him or the character? So I think
0: this is a, there's a kind of him gauging the situation a little bit there. It's later on, of course, we're still in the same room, but now they've actually taken the whole set Mm. and they have moved it to the location in the mountains so one wall of the Mm. set they can shoot through to the actual window looking out. Mm. So frequently they would shoot most of the scene on the studio in Hollywood and then they would shoot anytime it went by the window and you'd see the helicopter, you'd see something moving outside. That's them with one piece of the set that they transported up to uh, the Sierras.
2: Right, wow.
0: And... We hear some strange noises at the door, and in comes a pig. Watching Jimmy Kahn react to that pig, man. Yeah. <laughs> now I'm just picturing John Rocha trapped in a bed. Oh. And a big pig comes up to say hi. Yeah, especially after having seen Snatch, where he <laughs>
2: feeds the people to the pigs. Um, uh, has
0: Annie done that? <laughs> That's a big pig. I'm just it's saying. A big pig. It's a good point. Yeah. So Yeah, it's really scary. Nope.
1: Paul, say hello to my favorite beast in the whole world, my sow, Misery.
0: Why does she name the pig after Misery? I've imagined because she's obsessed with a character. I guess so. I guess so. And she loves the pig, so she loves Misery. Right. Extension, yeah. James Conn has a beautiful, awkward <laughs> delivery.
2: She's a fine uh, pig, is what she is. <laughs>
0: And then she says, all right, so this is not um, a nice thing that's about to come out of her mouth, that's about to come out of my mouth, but I, it's really funny, which is she says,
1: I'm on page 300 now, Paul, and it's better than perfect. It's divine. What's the ceiling that Dago painted? Oh.
2: <laughs> but again, this is great writing because that's that mo- that unsettles you because she's using a racial slur so casually. Yep, and even he's taken aback, right? Because of course James Con uh, has said many times that he's an honorary Italian, so like right. I, it's, you can play in that into that for himself. But like her dropping it so casually, you know, that she wouldn't know Da Vinci's name was it? no Michelangelo rather Michelangelo. Michelangelo yeah. yeah, so it's um,
0: just fascinating, right? Her reaction well, to it, and I think what the key to it is is like, y- is it a you know slur against Italians? Oh, it totally is. Yes, I don't think she knows that. Like, like, I don't think I think in her mind, that's just what you call Italians. You're giving her too much credit, dude. I don't know if it's I'm I'm saying that she's dumber.
2: (laughs) Oh, no, I'm saying she does know it. But she's one of those people that uses racial slurs casually, as um, some people in rural areas do. Well, is, some people in all areas do. Well, fair, some people in all areas do. Yeah, that's a fair point.
0: Yeah. It, you could you, it's perfectly reasonable that she that 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 she does know it's a horrible thing to say. Mm-hmm. Um absolutely. Or, or that she doesn't. You're absolutely right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um but the moment and him just kind of reeling with it yeah. and going this is teen chapel.
1: Yeah. That and misery's child, those are the only two divine things ever in this world.
0: Because it is a compliment. I mean, she's making, she's saying those are one of the two greatest things in the world. Yeah. <laughs> Just. Which is why it's it's going to be such a crash
2: when she shows up at night by his bedside because she's praised it so highly. Yep. That when the crash happens, it's going to be pretty brutal.
0: Um, and then again, it's a lensing, it's performance, it's the set design, it's the costume, her little bent over snorts. Oh my god! As she leaves. Oh well and, and, and this is the thing too having just read the book yeah this is not the character in the book all the sweet stuff the goofy stuff the silly stuff the laughing stuff uh-huh that's not in the book oh wow she does say oogie in some of those words but she is a scary serial killer who's obviously trying to kill wants to kill him yeah you know but here it's not that way. It's more from a fan point of view. Well, is she is saying? definitely a fan. Okay. But it's that all of this, the, the the veneer of sweetness in Kathy Bates' performance, I think, comes from Rob Reiner, William Goldman, oh, and Kathy Bates, yes, yes. not from Stephen King.
2: Right, right. Fair point.
0: Part of this, I do have to say, though, is I listen to books. And I think the choice of the reader, not that I don't like her, yeah. for reading this book was wrong. First of all, it was weird that it's a woman who reads the book Misery. It should be a man. It's right. all from Paul Sheldon's
2: perspective. Yeah, good point.
0: And the reader is Lindsay Krauss. Oh, shit. Yeah. She's a good actress. She's a great actress. But she her whole manner is cold.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, like, just as in, in acting frequently, she has a very sort of dry kind of so that's and it's it, a
2: high, slightly higher pitched voice as well you yeah, don't so should have read it Lauren Bacall Lauren Bacall should have read it
0: no a guy should have read it
2: okay fine
0: because I, it's just Paul Sheldon uh, the entire thing is Paul Sheldon's voice in his head mm. so it's very strange that they chose a woman to read the book very- to me Um. anyway but again we've digressed
1: when my husband left me I wasn't prepared it wasn't an easy time for a while I thought I might go crazy I know how that can be I don't know about you but what I did to get through it was I dove into work
0: and the scene is very strange and it feels like why is she telling him this stuff and what is he doing he's on the bed and he's acting sort of awkward mm. and she says that's where she says that she discovered the misery books
1: she made me so happy she made me forget all my problems. Of course, I suppose you had a little something to do with that, too.
0: Yeah. Well. And he's very awkward. It takes a long time to figure out what is going on. Yeah. And then she's, he says, I'm um, and pulls out the urinal bottle because he's been peeing under the covers the whole time. It's so... Okay. Why? Why? Why, why, why was this scene... Having him peeing while she's giving this speech—it's further emasculation. She's—he's mm. a, a child peeing while
2: mom turns away. Yeah, for the first time. You know what I'm saying? Yep. When your mom walks you to the bathroom when you're a young, a young boy, uh, you know your mom has to be there in case anything happens. Yep. So, yeah, you have to. She turns away from you as you pee. So it's—it's it's a further emasculation,
0: I would think. I think that's totally right. And she yeah. takes away the bottle. Oh my god! And they she keeps talking about marriage. <laughs> oh my god!
1: Don't get me wrong. I'm not against marriage per se, but it'd take a pretty special guy to make me want to walk down that aisle again.
0: And she's holding the bottle (laughs) of tea. Shaking it, making points. shaking it. (laughs) And he's nervous as he's and she's not aware of it, or maybe or it's it seems as if she's not aware of it. She might very well be aware of it. Right, right. Um, and he's trying to have a conversation and not be, you know, (laughs) freaked out by this. And here's the thing is, is that this is not the only time that she is holding a container of liquid over his bed and shaking it. Right. This is the lighter fluid. Yeah. Right. Good point. Is that there's so many things in the soup, which was the the first and the soup. There's so many things in this movie where they're replaying. A thing that's going to come back later yeah. in a more violent way. Yeah. Just as the cigarette and the match and the lighter fluid and the champagne and all these things. That, someone asked recently, because I'd said it like this idea of repetition, repetition, transformation, mm. you know, and, you know, climax is that these rules of threes and stuff, this is how they work is that you introduce things and then you transform them as you go along.
1: Well, I'd love to stay here and chat, but I'm right at the end. And I got to find out what happens.
0: That's where I start to go. I bet Paul's starting to worry about what's going to happen. at the Yeah, point. I think so. It's late. He's asleep. We hear the door. It slams. He looks up and there she is. And she says. You.
1: You dirty bird. How could you? She can't be dead.
0: <laughs> to say it's scary is like an understanding. Oh, yeah. And, and the way it's shot. Yeah.
2: So perfectly framed. She's in a position of power because it's shot from yep. below. And the way she's saying these things and the the lighting on her is so creepy. And uh, Paul's response to her, I imagine, is the same response he gave to Lauren Bacall and to anyone else who read the manuscript. It's like, how could you kill her? And she, he's like any in 1871 women often died in childbirth it's my easy way out that makes
0: sense in the world that i've constructed well and i think i think it's also shows that he knew that she was going to be upset
2: yeah yeah right he had
0: his excuse prepared yeah good point but a spirit is the important thing and misery spirit is still alive and she like picking up the whole bed Mm -hmm. and shaking it says i don't want her
1: no i didn't who did no one she she died she just slipped away
0: slipped away does not go over well no it does not <laughs> and here's the thing and my guess is stephen king would agree with me is that no he did murder her that's what right you're the writer fair point point. and she's just unbelievably outraged and she looks looks around and she says just slip away you did it and she pulls out this like a wooden thing that was supporting a pot or something i don't know exactly what it is and she's holding it over his head and he is completely helpless yep he's just that he can't fight back he can't move he can't do anything he's clearly terrified and she smashes it against the wall above his head and she goes
1: i thought you were good paul but you're not good. You're just another lying old dirty birdie. And I don't think I would better be around you for a while.
0: Her performance has an incredible empty quality. Mm -hmm. And you could see there's this place that Annie goes when it's real dark.
2: Mm
0: -hmm. The, the, like the, the wigging out about the profanity moment. That's not the scariest. No, 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 no. The empty Annie. Yeah. Yeah.
2: I always say this, the, Quieter the anger, the more dangerous it is, because the histrionic anger is just an explosion of rage that has to get out of the body. The quiet anger is more of a resolute anger that has a decision that could be coming here that is devoid of emotion or worry of consequence. It is, scamming I mean, when she smashes, it's great sound work too—the foley or whatever—smashing yeah. that thing against the wall above Paul's head and. And you know we' just seen the pig, and the pig is an- you know, obviously a pig is an animal, it's animalistic, it does what it does it bullies things, it moves things around the way she, she becomes an animal in essence in that moment, yanking the bed, screaming at him, she's raging inside of a pen in essence uh and it's frustrating and when she says, "You murdered my misery again, multiple meanings to that you know you murdered my misery uh in there, so just so much of the back and forth here in this scene which on the surface works so well as a a crazed fan going after a creator it's working on so many levels as well in terms of you took something away from me that was my tenuous my joy it was my only joy in this world because i imagine uh, uh, annie's a very tortured woman because the world does not work the way she wants it to and she's been built with this overwhelming sense of justice and belief that her way of well, the world working is the only best way for the world to work. And because it doesn't work that way, she is so frustrated all the time. And the books have been her escape from that because that's a world she
0: can understand and connect with. You know, It's funny what you said about her being animalistic. Hmm. And I'm going to combine it with what you said about the quiet moments being the scariest yeah. or most dangerous is that if when she is wigging out and breaks the thing and yells, you murdered my misery, that she is, it is the animal aspect of Annie Wilkes. When she stops and turns to him and quietly says,
1: Don't even think about anybody coming for you. Not the doctors, not your agent, not your family. Because I never called them. Nobody knows you're here. And you better hope nothing happens to me. Because if I die, you die.
0: That's the human. Yes. You know right. what I mean? Yeah. Like it's no longer the animal. It's the human mind that's come in control and is now communicating to him in a way that is the truth. Yeah. And, you know, we talked about calibrating Annie's crazy. Well, the flip side of that is calibrating how scared Paul is. Right, How aware he is of how terrible the situation is. This and is the he, turning moment. Point. This is the moment. Yeah. right. Because there was some plausible deniability that maybe this is going to be okay on some level. And the moment that she says, I never, nobody's coming for you. If I die, you die. Right. He's in deep shit. He could process the rage. Yeah. From a fan.
2: He could process her shattering shit around him as a fan. Her calculating response to him saying all these things that are logical and um, real and are not rage is the moment he realizes that I'm dealing with someone who's much more aware of what's going on here. And I'm scared out
0: of my mind. She exits. He hears doors closing. He hears her get in the car, car drives away. He sees it out the window. And then he looks towards the door, pushes the covers off. And now he's going to try to get out of the bed. Yeah. Now, first of all, we've got James Kahn who's for a couple of weeks at least now has just been in this bed. <laughs> That's all he's been doing. So now he finally gets to move. And the fact is, he's a really athletic guy. Yeah. Which is good because the, the thing that he has to do now actually isn't that easy. And it's really hard acting to crawl out of the bed and to support himself. And I love the moment as he's kind of supporting himself with his hands and his legs are still in the bed. And he looks back at his legs. And I'm assuming you've had this where you know the next thing is really going to fucking hurt. Oh, yeah. And the moment of stealing, like trying to get yourself ready. And even knowing I can't be ready because it's there's nothing I can do. Mm-hmm. You watch that and then he falls out of the bed and screams. Ah! Ah! And you see like a brief shot of that bruised and swollen foot. And then him dragging himself across the ground in that low angle. And he gets the door and he reaches up and touches the door and it is locked. And he just sits against the wall breathing, knowing that he is the technical term fucked. (laughs) And I think that is probably a good moment to leave Paul Sheldon in this terrible situation in the home of Annie Wilkes and, end part one of our exploration of misery. What Uh, will happen to Paul? What's going to happen to Paul? Um, but as always, we'd love to hear your thoughts on misery. Please do a search for Cinefiles on Facebook. If you're on Facebook, if you're not on Facebook and you're on Twitter, then look for Cine underscore files. If you hate Twitter and only like to explore the world and <laughs> in pictures, go to the Cinephiles podcast on Instagram. And if you really just want to listen to the show and make sure you don't miss an episode, well, you should subscribe to it at at least one of the following places, Apple podcasts, YouTube, Spotify, Stitcher, and anywhere else you can think of. And if you are on Apple podcasts, maybe you're not just interested in hearing our words. You want to write a few of your own and write a a nice review of the podcast. We would really appreciate that. If you want to buy or stream misery along with every other film we've ever reviewed, you can do it on cinephiles.net and to support the show is patreon.com slash the cinephiles, where you can not only listen to our weekly cinephile shorts, but you can also listen to our monthly watch alongs, the very first of which is Air Force One, and it is up there for our $10 and above level. And if you want to reach me, you can reach me at SR Morris on Twitter, SR Morris1 on Instagram, and Enterprise Incidents for all your Star Trek needs. John, how would people find you? Uh, you can always find me at The
2: Roca says on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok, The Outlaw Nation on Twitch. My YouTube channel, youtube.com slash John says, where we're doing a lot of reviews and covering a lot of topics from the world of
0: film and entertainment. And my other podcasts, The Top 10, uh, The Geek Buddies, a Strong Style, and The Hot Mike. And I think that's it for this week. We'll be back next time to experience one of the scariest moments in the history of film right here on The Cinephiles.